God bless and welcome to this week's episode of Family Discussion. We are so glad that you've joined us today. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of John that the world will know that we are his followers by the way that we love one another. And yet it seems like the love of Jesus is less and less evident in the way that we speak to and about one another, especially when we disagree. So, in the hopes of recapturing the brother-sister love that Jesus has won for us, we are calling a family meeting. For the next half hour, let's cut through the noise and look at the issues without slander and malice. It's time for a family discussion. Well, God bless and welcome to another episode of Family Discussion. My name is Marcus Ortega, and as always, I am joined by the dynamic Lisa Spencer. Lisa, how are you today? We went into the D's, yay. We're in the D's. <laughs> I, it's going to take a long time to get through this alphabet. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, I'm doing well. All right, how, so people are hearing this in January, but um, we are recording this on the heels of one of the great snowpocalypses New York has seen in a while. Um, it wasn't terrible, about 14, 15 inches in one storm. Uh, there can be worse. Where I li- I don't live up by Buffalo or Syracuse, where that's a common occurrence. I lived further down south uh, and further east. Did, did uh, Virginia get hit by any of this thing? It was a total bust. Oh, what? Yeah, really? Let me tell you. So, you know, because I have a lot of flexibility with my job. So... All right. Because I'm the only staff person. Um, So I decided, you know, I kept hearing, oh, we're going to get, you know, several inches of snow. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to grab my work laptop on Tuesday when I pack it up. And I'm working from home on Wednesday because I'm not going out in no snow and sleet and whatever. Yeah, you don't don't adventure out in the snow? I do not venture out. Even when I lived in New England. I lived no? in New England for 14 years. I did not like venturing out in the snow. I mean, yeah, sometimes, sometimes okay, you have okay. to. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, the you know 9 a.m. came, 11 a.m. It's right. We got freezing rain. Oh, uh, but it, it still wasn't even enough to make the roads, you know, dangerous or, you know, okay. yeah. because, it, you know, it was fine. We had enough traction. So, finally, about. It was after the sun went down. We maybe got like half an inch. Oh, no. I was like, you know, at least make it worth my while. You know, put a blanket down of something. (laughs) Right? So, you know, so at least while I'm working and I'm looking out the window, I can see. I can see snow. But it was, yeah, it was a total bust. And, of course, more more north... eastern parts of virginia they they got a lot more snow so once you started getting towards dc um you know they they had several inches of snow but not not us it was wow yeah it was a bust yeah we we uh we got a lot we got a lot it was not a bust up here uh but it was nice you know i mean it did shut things down for a day Mm -hmm. but i love the snow i'm from the desert this is um I didn't get to grow up with this, so I absolutely love it when the snow comes through. Um, I did not so much enjoy the shoveling. My back is telling me today that there was quite a bit of it, and there was, uh, based on because of the move. There just is more shoveling now uh-huh. than where we used to live, and uh, I am out of shape for for the shoveling. But that's okay. <laughs> we got through it. 
it's done. I got everything shoveled out. Um, and you know, excited for, excited for continuing to worship. We're still worshiping in person up here in New York and that's been a blessing. So, yeah, uh, yeah, God's good. So we took a turn last week, Lisa, into the world of systematic theology. Yes. And, um, this is not us leaving behind the things we talked about for the first half of our season, but rather what we're doing is we're answering some of the things that we raised during the first half by going to the world of systematic theology, because you and I agree, and we talked about this last week, that systematic theology really is uh, applicable to questions of race, ethnicity, and injustice. Um, but systematic theology is kind of this broad canvas, and it has a ton of different, uh, you know, we call them loci, but really it's topics. Mm -hmm. There are all these different kinds of topics that we have to engage in. And it makes it somewhat difficult to decide where we're going to start. Um, you know, John Calvin said you can either start with the doctrine of God or the doctrine of man. Uh, Herman Bovink starts with the doctrine of Scripture. Westminster Standards start with the doctrine of Scripture, but then you go to something like Heidelberg and it's the doctrine of God. Mm -hmm. It's it seems a little bit of a grab bag of where you start because these opening doctrines are all tied together. So, Lisa, where are we starting? in our study through systematic theology, and why did we choose to go with this particular topic? Okay. Well, we're starting with the doctrine of God because that's where it starts. It all stems, it all flows. It, you know, it, it, it all circles around who God is and what he has done. Now, in fairness, as we wrestled with this, and especially given yeah. the... Um, you know, where, especially in the Reformed tradition, the fact that, you know, a number of folks start with the doctrine of Scripture, because how we know about God is what has been revealed to us in yeah. Scripture. And so this is why a number of folks start with Scripture. But if we're looking at this, you know, if, if we're just thinking about, you know, where does it actually start? It starts with God, with the caveat of knowing that we can only know what God has revealed to us um, from him. You know, I, I like that passage in uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord because God yeah. keeps secrets from us. Mm. He does not reveal everything to us. Right. But what has been revealed has been for us. In our children. I, I think that's beautiful. It absolutely is. And I think what's important for people to know is we're talking here about logical priority. We're not here talking about actual priority of experience. Which, And here's what I mean by that. God exists before the written word exists. Um, and so we're, we're tackling doctrine of God. But the written word is, at least like you were saying, that's our window into who he is. Um, we can only know him insofar as he reveals himself to us through his word and through creation, through um, conscience. We're going to get into special and general revelation when we tackle doctrine or scripture later. Um, we, we are only able to see him because he reveals himself to us. At the same time, we, we can get to know him truly, while not exhaustively truly, and so we are going to be talking about doctrine of God, but not as divorced from Scripture, because our only way to understand the doctrine of God is through the Scriptures. So, um, 
Lisa, who are, who are you bringing to the table today? I, I saw you had a couple books with you. You know, I just received John Frame's Systematic Theology. Uh, it was actually a go. birthday present from my husband. Happy birthday to uh, Lisa 20th, Spencer. My birthday was on December 20th. So that, but here's the thing. I know it's January, but all y'all need to now be sending all kinds of gifts and money to Lisa Spencer over there in Virginia. Happy birthday. There you go. Thank you. What we'll do is we'll put your address out publicly. I'm sure that oh, won't wait, go weird. Well, let's not go that far. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, happy I birthday. Am, and you have John Frame as your birthday gift, I am which a is fan. a little strange, but that's okay. I am that's a, a theologian's birthday because gift. Because I am a fan of Frame. But it all started because I realized I did not have Louis Burkhoff's work. I thought my husband already had it in his library, and I was shocked, I tell you. <laughs> I, I, wait, I, I'm sorry, shocked and disappointed. And so I'm like, well, I need to I need to get a hold of that because I've wanted it for years, and I've not had mm. it on my shelf. And it was just a reminder that, like, oh, by the way, I don't have frame either, and I really want him on my shelf too. So. There you go. Well, John Frame is a great, uh, that is a great systematic theology for folks, especially if they, they want the kind of big one volume, but written in 21st century language. That's uh, John Frame systematic is great for that. And then there's another book you're bringing. I'm not bringing a systematic with me, but I saw you have another book that's relatively recent. Um, and so do I. So which one's yours? So mine is The Beautiful Community by uh, Erwin Ince Jr., a pastor in the PCA. He was actually the first African-American moderator for the General Assembly uh, wow. in 2018. So that was kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, and he's wrote this book, uh, Beautiful Community, Unity, Diversity, and the Church at Its Best. And what I really love about this book is that he layers the, uh, he, he builds on the foundation of who God is, um, you know, on his attributes and the fact that God operates in Trinity. Hmm. Hmm. So I'm, I'm bringing a book that's similar to that, but I got to say, Erwin Ince's book is on my list of books I've got to read. I absolutely have to read this. I, it's, it hasn't been out long, has it? No. Just a, a little while. It's just and, out, uh, I think, in November, I believe. November really? Or, that recent? Or October. It's, yeah, it, it, it was My goodness, definitely okay. in tw 2020, uh, the latter part yeah. of 2020. Man, that is a book I really want to get my hands on. I've heard so many good things about that book, so I'm excited to grab it. Um, I am bringing with me uh, one Michael Reeves. And um, he is a uh, he is a theologian. Got his PhD from King's College. A very British type of uh, a theologian. Uh, his book is called "Delighting in the Trinity." He calls it an introduction to the Christian faith, which I think is actually a really helpful way to approach this. It is he basically achieves the impossible. I've never seen anybody do this. He's written a practical theology of the Trinity. And he's laced it with British humor throughout, oh, which nice. is so much more fun to read a theology when you're chuckling half the time. Um, it's brilliant. It's 130 pages. It's a short little book. 
but I do think it is one of the more important um, ways to get into the doctrine of the Trinity because it is so user-friendly. Um, so much Trinitarian conversation can feel like it is so in the weeds and difficult and using massive words and leaning on a lot of Latin. Uh, there's not like a single Latin phrase in this book. It's so approachable. It's wonderful. So that's an important uh, book for people's shelves as well. So Erwin Entz, John Frame, Michael Reeves are impacting our conversation today, plus all the other theologians that we've read in the past. Um, so Lisa, you and I had a little conversation before we started. Are we going to go into the attributes or are we going to go into the Trinity first? Um, I think the place to start is in God's being. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to start in the Trinity. But we, you mentioned something in this that I think is important. This is an applied theology. So when we're talking about this, what exactly are we meaning by it's an applied doctrine of God? It's an applied. So we're taking the, the reality of who God is and what that means for us on this earth, what that means as his redeemed people and how we believe, how we reflect his glory here on earth. And this, I, I love the idea that somebody has written a very practical understanding of the Trinity because you're right. I mean, for many, many years as a Christian, it's just not, it's, it's just not something that, I paid attention to the church circles I was in didn't pay attention to because it does tend to get relegated to this more academic sphere. But the reality of how we, not only what we believe about God, but what God has done and how we live that out is, is absolutely rooted in Trinitarianism. It has to be for it to be faithful. And, and I think that's, that's where we start then. It's in the Trinity so that we are able to be faithful to who God is, right? And, and I want to, it's not going to sound like I'm starting at the Trinity. It's going to sound like I'm starting at an attribute. But I want to start from 1 John 4, chapter 8, because it immediately is practical. It's the practical nature of our Christian life mixed with uh, who God is in his being, Whoever does not love, so he's speaking in the negative here. This is John speaking, 1 John 4. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is the centerpiece of Michael Reeves' book, Delighting in the Trinity. His whole argument is that we know who God is through the person of Jesus Christ. And we know who God is... Um, because of the relationship that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has with the Father. And it's a relationship of love. So if our entry point is into this understanding of who God is, is through Jesus, just like our understanding of all things must be put through the grid of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. We have to begin with, he's the Son, John 1. He is the, he's the Word. He's the Son. This is his identity. We go there. If he's the son, that implies there is a father. So immediately we are in uh, Trinitarian conversation, right? And, and I think what we have to, to consider is if God is love and if he is Trinity, what is the relationship between love and Trinity? And that's where I think Michael Reeves' book 
really it takes on a, a level of helpfulness that I don't see in a lot of other theological discourse around the Trinity because it gets so caught up in some of the uh, the minutia and the theological disagreement that it becomes very very difficult to get into the practical nature of this. Um, so here's what Reeves says, and I, and I I think it's very compelling. I'm I'm convinced by it. I hope that others are encouraged by it. Here's here's what he says. The the father, his very identity is he loves his son. Um, we use this language from the uh, I mean it's ancient language because it's hard to come up with better language. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is a classic Trinitarian formula. Mm -hmm. Here's what we're saying. There are three persons. God is one, but there are three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, bearing the same attributes. And, and the second half of this, I'm going to turn over to Lisa, and you're going to run us through what an attribute is and what some of the important attributes are in this applied theology. But the he is Father, Son, and Spirit. But this procession here of persons, the Father begets the Son, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Reeves defines all of this as love because of what we just read in 1 John 4. God is love. And so, the Son, uh, he is begotten by the Father in love, and that love that the Father has for the Son is the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. The Son then returns that same love to the Father, and that love is the person of the Holy Spirit. So here's where, I mean, I, I've already lost a ton of people. Hang with me. I hope they're hanging in. If love is the very identity of who God is, and if, as, uh, let me quote Reeves here because I think it's helpful, if the Father's very identity consists in his love for the Son, then when we love the Son, then we are reflecting what is most important about the Father, the most characteristic thing about the Father. So, so let, me, let me put a little bit of a bow on this. Our love for God is actually overflow of the Father's love for the Son. If you love Jesus, it's because the Father so loves Jesus, so loves his Son, that he has created us that we might also love him. He's so enamored with the Son that he wants us to have that same experience. But then Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, he wants the same thing for us when we are uh, in our relationship with the Father. He wants us to love him too, to be able to call him Abba Father. And this love, then, that we are invited into, this, this God who has made us in order that we might love him and be loved by him, then leads us to love others. Mm -hmm. So when this gets to the conversation of justice, all justice conversation for the Christian must be born of our understanding of God as Trinity. Um, and, and so I, I really want people to pick up this book. He, he makes an argument that God cannot be love if he's not Trinity, because if he is only a single, um, kind of like our, our Muslim neighbors would say, 
If he is only one and not Trinity, then he has no one else to love. Mm -hmm. There is no way to love. There's no way to display that love. Um, same kind of problem with pantheism. So he gets into all kinds of deep waters that I think are excellent. Um, but I would just say this. We have to have a robust Trinitarianism to really be able to understand what justice is. Mm -hmm. um, because injustice then becomes a violation of God's love. And that will help us frame our understandings of justice in a way that doesn't get us in all kinds of other ditches that are out there. Is that clear as mud, Lisa? Did I do a terrible job of explaining <laughs> that, all that? that? That is clear. And I think we also have to keep in mind all, all of his attributes, right? So when, you, when we say God is love, and, and I love the way that he, um, that Reeves, you know, explained that, that, you know, our, our tendency is to impose our limited, you know, human-oriented understanding of what that means, right? Love is just not some, you know, fluty, you know, flighty, you know, no, no holds bar kind of, you know, experiential thing. It has, it, it, it's, it's rooted in the very, it is a character of God. It is an attribute of God, but it's in concert with all that he is. Mm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and I think this could become one of our problems when we're talking about justice, when we're trying to, um, when we're, asking questions about oppression or questions about uh, economic things like poverty and all that. And we come up with all these ideas of how we can uh, apply our theology to these real world problems. Too often we divorce our, our solutions are divorced from the person and character of God. Like our, our job as Christians is to be a reflection of the love of God that the father has for the son that is, that is personified, if you will, in the spirit overflows into us and then overflows into our neighbor if our goal is to demonstrate the love of god to others that should impact the way we go about justice conversations um it, it's got to be rooted in god's very being um and and we have to be careful here that we don't get into some kind of weird um formulations of the trinity that like we, we don't want to say what I've heard some people say. Well, we participate in the triune life of God when we do this. No. Well, no, we're not God. <laughs> but we get to reflect God as his image. through. What, so it's different than participating in his Godhead. We are still reflecting him to a watching world. And I think that's a wonderful privilege that we get to have as his creatures. Yes. So that's Trinitarianism in a nutshell, a little bit applied to the question of justice. But there are these things called attributes. Lisa, you mentioned this, that this is one of the attributes of God. It's a characteristic. So first, does define what an attribute is, and then maybe walk us into which attributes are helpful for us in these justice, race, ethnicity conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, it, here's my working definition. An attribute is basically a, a characteristic of God. It's who he is. Um, it is his being. And that's why it's important for us not to pit attributes against each other, because we have to look at them in total. Um, you know, and I always start with the ones that are, you know, uh, you know, the, the fact that um, God is wholly other. 
than us, right? You start with the aseity of God, that he is completely independent. Um, he has had no, there's no beginning or no end. Um, and so that makes him not like us. And that, that's also important when we start thinking about, you know, how are we applying his love to, or, or basically how are we living the Christian life, you know, in relation to our neighbor? How are we reflecting his glory? Um, I, I don't think anything drives me nuts when I hear, well, I know that God is not pleased based on some you know agenda you know narrow agenda focused um you know thing it's like okay so how first of all how do you know that and second of all what about you know what about these other attributes you, you know these other pieces um but that you know and so that's a uh I, I start with that because it's a reminder of the need for humility when we mm. when we come into these issues the fact that there is god and we are not he yeah. um and that he operates out of time and out of space and we have the benefit of his operating in time and space right but to me this is the beauty of you know the historical redemptive narrative of scripture because we can see the ways in which god has interacted and culminated in the incarnation um but we have to again it's you know the fact that we know what has been revealed but there's so much we don't know um what else um the fact that he is uh, all-powerful, mm. that he is all-knowing. Again, that ought, to hum that ought to humble us because our limited, finite human brains can only comprehend so much. I don't care how many degrees you, are, you have, how high your uh, IQ is, how uh, many people think you're so smart. It pales. <laughs> Yeah. We are limited. We have finite understanding. We see through a glass dimly, but God knows all. He sees all. Um, and so he is omnipresent. Um, you know, and so when we get closer to home, it's the, the, the fact that God is, um, okay. So you mentioned, you mentioned love, um, that God is just, that God is righteous, mm. that he is holy. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's important too. When we start talking about justice because we have to look at it in terms of what he has determined is right and wrong, right? And, and to me, this is the beautiful, one of the beautiful aspects of looking at the law that he gave to Old Testament Israel. Because in there you can see, especially when you consider the backdrop of, you know, that in that cultural environment. Um, and so you can see what what God cared about. Right. And I mean, in all, all throughout the Bible, it's not just the Old Testament, but I think particularly in his law. And even though we know that there are many aspects of the law that now have been fulfilled in Christ, so they're no longer relevant for us, but his moral law sure is. Mm -hmm. And we can see the yep. characteristics of his 
justice, of his love, of his righteousness displayed it throughout the Old Testament in the law and then in the New Testament, you know, and how Jesus fulfills that and what, what that means now for us as New Testament believers. You know, I think one of the things that might trip people up as I listen to that is when we think about the law, it doesn't often feel loving um, because the consequences of breaking the law uh, provoke God's wrath. And I think that one of the things that can really trip people up is when they're going through the scriptures and saying, you're saying God is love. He has this, he's omniscient, he's, he's omnipotent, right? He's got all this power, he's, he's everywhere. And then there's these couple things that aren't, that, that are also true. There's wickedness in the world and he seems at times to do things that are contrary to what we would consider loving. Um, and so one of the things that I think we want to help people with here is um, I want to spend a second and talk about the wrath of God in this conversation because I think it's an important part of, of understanding God's love. Wrath, his anger, actually comes out of his love. It's, it's a, it is a loving response to injustice to wickedness, to seeing people turn away from him who is love itself. So here's the thing. If you turn away from God in rebellion, you're turning away from love. Um, and if he loves you and you turn away from him, he will respond in wrath because you're hurting yourself and you're hurting others by your sin. And I think, you know, it's, it's something that if you love somebody and something else puts the person you love at risk you are going to respond in anger at that thing that's hurting your loved one right i mean that's just the natural response in fact if you didn't react in anger when someone you love is being hurt it would call into question whether or not you love that person so it is with god's wrath his wrath is a wiping away of those things that would hurt the people that he loves. And so when we, when we see things like injustice, when we see um, you know, the specific evils we've talked about, when we see racism, ethnic hatred, those kinds of things, they provoke God's wrath because of the love he has for all of those people who are being impacted by that sin. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just think it's important that as we're getting into who God is and his attributes, and we're trying to situate current modern day conversations within this larger picture of systemic, of systematic theology, um, that sin and what we've been talking about, these injustices are sin. Sin provokes the wrath of God, not because he's this angry, you got to be careful and walk around eggshells around him, God, because he so loves his people that anything that will hurt hurt any of his creation, he hates. And that's why, and that's where judgment comes in. That's why he has to right. judge. Because right. when his holiness is offended, he when people when there is rebellion against him, against his character, he has to judge. That also mm. stems from his love. Amen. I mean, here's here's 
Miroslav Volf. I know that some people might have issue with Volf, but I, I think Volf's brilliant. Um, here's uh, just a paragraph from him that I think is helpful. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person, every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed, my people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or, think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a deeply powerful and important paragraph from Wolf here. And that should... Um, be a part of the heartbeat of the Christian when we see wickedness. And I think that it has to be, it's two-pronged. It's when we see wickedness in the world, we must be revolted by it. But when we see wickedness in our own hearts, we should also be revolted about that and want to see the Holy Spirit take a scalpel to our souls and really do that work. Right. And, and I think one um, overlooked uh, attribute, aspect of God is his mercy. Um, and particularly, particularly when you look at, you know, the Old Testament, yes, he, you know, he judges, he, you know, he has wrath, he judges. But one thing we, we see, we, we, you know, is that he, he is long suffering. He mm. ha allows his people to go off the rails for, you know, oh, not, not so, you know, you know sometimes it, it seems like it's immediate, but when you look when you extend beyond scripture and look at all of the heinous acts that this world has seen um you know from slavery in different forms not just you know american chattel slavery which in my opinion was particularly heinous but you know slavery mm -hmm. existed in various forms before that um yeah. you know wars the the evil that mankind um does to, to other you know to other mankind oh my gosh the holocaust um mm. it, it's just heinous i mean that is at you know to to exterminate six million people simply because of their ethnicity evil. is is evil you know and today we can look at um you know the sex slave industry mm. yeah um you look at prostitution. You look at um, child pornography. Uh, uh, you know, um, child. You know, child labor that exists in uh, you know different parts of the world where children are yeah. exploited, um, and sometimes because of poverty, are you know are put in that condition by their parents. 
Yeah. Um, and so, you know, because of the fall, we, we've seen all of the ways, we've seen so many ways in which men can perpetrate, you know, humanity can perpetrate evil against others. And, you know, and here it is, I mean, you know, Jesus died on the cross over 2,000 years ago, and we still see evil continue. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, so through that, we know that, that God is long-suffering, because he could just come down and, you know, end, end it all. And we know that that day is coming when mm -hmm. Jesus will come to judge living in the dead, put an end to all the evil. But until yeah. then, we live in this already, but not yet, we live with the reality of this evil going on, but the fact that we know that God is just, yeah. that he has wrath, that he will judge. Yeah. Um, and so all of that, you know, this together and, you know, and the fact that he is merciful, he's merciful to us when you consider, Amen. you know, all of our tripping ups and doings and, and whatnot and how long suffering yeah. he is. Um, and, and that, you know, and when we, when we get a glimpse of his attributes, that again, it's, it, it ought to humble us, mm. you know, mm. how can I then, because of this great God and all of who he is and the fact that he has said, I will be your God, you will be my people. And he gathers the people to himself and showers them with grace and love and mercy, how, how then can I respond? Yeah. You know, it's remarkable when we consider the mercy of God to us. In, in If you recognize how sinful you really are, mm -hmm. if you see how, how much our turning away from the love of God would offend and provoke this loving God because of his love for us he's provoked by our sin I love the way the prophet Micah ends his prophecy because I think that what he does here is he, he demonstrates the correct response you come back to God in a feeling of shame because of your sinfulness but then I, I want to read this because I think it's a beautiful beautiful picture of how God receives those not by causing a shame but lifting us out of that shame so here's starting in verse uh, 16 of Micah chapter 7 nations will see and be ashamed deprived of all their power they will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf they will lick dust like a snake like creatures that crawl on the ground they will come trembling out of their dens they will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you so that's a picture of, of fear of this mighty God who is almighty. But then look at verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. 
you will again have compassion on us. You will, and I like the violent language he uses here about God's response to our sins. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. This is not a God who simply says, oh, it's okay, and pats you on the head and puts you on your way, but who violently puts sin to death and demonstrates this. Micah can't see this yet, but the violence of God against sin will be demonstrated on the cross itself. Mm-hmm. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob. You show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. And so when we consider God's love to us, when we consider his wrath against those things that hurt his creation and his creatures, when we consider that in spite of how wicked we are in rebelling against the God of love and pursuing these other things. He delights in showing mercy to us. It should impact how we think about justice. It should impact how we should think about sin. It should impact how we treat those who have sinned. Hmm. If God can show us mercy, if God can forgive us, I don't say this lightly because some of the, Lisa, some of the sins you cataloged a little bit ago are horrifying. But if God can forgive us, then we are called to turn around and forgive others somehow. And that's a total reliance on the Spirit to be forgiving. And, and there, you know, when we get into justice conversations, we get into racism and ethnocentrism and all those, being forgiving is sometimes lacking. But we, the people of God, are called to forgive those who have sinned just as God has forgiven us. Mm-hmm. And, and that, to me, that circles back to the or the quote that you read from Reeves about the the love of the, the father and the son, you know, and it, it's as simple as John 3.16, where God so loved mm. the world that he gave his only begotten son. So he expresses his love to us through the giving of the son who, whom he loves on our behalf. And that's why the highest rebellion, of course, is opposition and rebellion against the Son. Yeah. And, you know, and so being united to the Son should compel us to act according to that love that we have received. Amen. Well, I hope this has been helpful for folks as we have kind of picked through um, who God is, his attributes, his very being, the aseity of God, um, and, and, you know, his, his being Trinity. We've gotten into this, but we've done this in order to really show that a Christian response to injustices, a Christian response to racism, to, eth- to, to any kind of ethnic hatred, a Christian response to the economic things that we've addressed in the earlier parts of the season, a Christian response must be rooted in who God is revealed himself to be. And if it's not, then, you know, doesn't matter how many good tools we have, it will be lacking. Um, if it starts there, then we can get into some of these other conversations down the road, but it's got to begin in the identity of who God is, his character, and and his very being. So I hope this has been encouraging to folks. We're not um, leaving this topic anytime soon. Probably going to need to come back and talk more about this, um, particularly God as creator, 
and how that is going to impact these conversations as well. Um, but until then, that's all for us today. You've been very kind to be with us in some very deep waters, but we hope you've enjoyed it. And we hope to see you again next time for our next episode of Family Discussion. Well, thank you again for joining us for this week's Family Discussion. If you'd like to learn more or catch up on episodes you missed, head on over to our home at reformedmargins.com. There you'll find great content about a whole host of issues that we pray will bless your relationship with Jesus, including articles written by Lisa Spencer and me, Marcos Ortega. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Your hosts are Marcos Ortega and Lisa Spencer. Our producer is Larry Lynn. Family Discussion is hosted by Podbean and recorded with Audacity. If you like what you heard today, it would be a great help to us if you gave a quick review and rating on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite content so that you don't miss our next Family Discussion. <laughs>